Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The date is Wednesday, March 18, 2009, and Accessible World is very pleased to present the chairman of a world view of history, Mr. Donald Queen. Don, get real close to the microphone, and it is yours. Uh, our book tonight is story of the deadliest pandemic in history. It's by John M. Berry, a very famous writer in the field of science. And it, he started writing in the book in uh, uh, 1997. Uh, it took him seven years. And so I think it came out in about nine, uh, 2004. And uh, uh, he didn't want to write a book to, to scare people, he says. He wanted to write a book about uh, science against, uh, or uh, rather a, a war of, of uh, science against uh, nature or and uh, in the backdrop of the war against men with war. Anyway, that's what he says. So he tells a story of, uh, about a number of people. He begins his book, by the way, with uh, one of the smartest scientists, he says, uh, Paul Lewis, who's walking down this aisle of, of uh, people dying of uh, flu in 1918 and uh, coughing up blood and so on. And, uh, and the book ends in the final chapter with uh, Paul Lewis, after years of unsuccessful efforts in trying to identify the uh, influenza as a bacteria, committing suicide or probably committing suicide uh, in South America. So uh, then the rest of the book, he starts with a doctor, a Dr. Uh, Welch, and who is, uh, leads the charge of bringing the United States into the modern world of medicine. Before that, there was very little uh, uh, training for doctors in the United States or in science of doctors. They were fine in industry, but not in that. And they starts with uh, Tom, uh, Thomas Huxley, who's uh, opening John Hopkins University. Then he talks about Rufus Cole. And they developed uh, medicine, revolutionized medicine in time for the uh, First World War. And they hoped that it would be the first war in history that more people, they, that people would kill more people with guns than with uh, disease. They didn't succeed. Uh, in the, uh, that they developed the vaccine for uh, the vaccinations, the germ theory, uh, public health. And in, the, in Europe, England thought it would, when it went into the First World War, that they had conquered disease too in the Boer War, where they had uh, used public health and sanitation. But when they got into Europe, the shrapnel was tearing up people so badly, and the fields were, had been uh, worked over with manure so many years that the infections were pretty bad. Before the influenza hit, by the way, they had the measles, and pneumonia had killed quite a few people. So they, they were a long ways from being successful. Well, we'll get to the uh, key players in this book, despite what he says. The, the key protagonists, I think, in this story are not the, uh, are not the, scient the scientists, although they are important, but it was the influenza itself, 
President Wilson and some of the politicians that helped conceal the epidemic and made it so bad. So Bob, let's, let's get to the interview. Uh, I want to thank Rick Harmon and Bob for editing this 50-minute interview down to 20 minutes so that we could listen to it. It's by the author, John M. Berry, on YouTube. And I will try to put the entire interview on YouTube, uh, on an email so people can listen to it if they so choose. It's well worth listening to, I think. So I'll get off the uh, thing here if I can. The World View of History presents John M. Barry, the author of The Great Influenza. We are talking with John M. Barry. He is a distinguished visiting scholar at the Center for Bioenvironmental Research at Tulane and Xavier University. He is also author of the new book, The Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history. John, thanks for spending time with us today. It really is my pleasure. Start us out and walk us through the when and where the epidemic began. Okay, well, it's important to understand that all influenza viruses come from birds. All influenza starts in birds. But the influenza virus is one of the most rapidly mutating viruses in existence. It's one of a group of viruses that virologists call, their technical term, oddly enough, is a mutant swarm because there's never an individual, even a subtype. They just, they, you know, mutate, mutate around sort of a mean. And this enormous mutation rate, a million times faster, literally a million times faster than a DNA virus, the mutation rate, uh, allows the virus to periodically jump species. And about as far back as we can reasonably diagnose influenza from symptoms, descriptions of symptoms, which goes at least five centuries and probably a good deal further back. From three to five times a century, an influenza virus has jumped from birds to people and then mutated in a way that allows it to pass from person to person. And when that has ha whenever that happens, nobody's in immune system in the world will be able to recognize that virus and defeat it so it spreads explosively and you have a pandemic. As I say, generally three to five times a century. Uh, there were three in the 20th century, 1968, 1957, both of which were serious, but nothing like 1918, and then 1918 itself. And it seems likely, although it's impossible to find, to prove precisely where it started, but the best evidence is it actually started in Kansas, which is a very unlikely site of origin, but that's where the evidence points. And at first, there was a mild spring wave that people didn't really notice. But all this time, the virus was in a new environment. It had just jumped species. It took it a while to become really at home in humans. And over a period of six to eight months, it became increasingly efficient at attacking humans and infecting them. And then all of a sudden, and by this time it had spread all over the world, uh, initially went from rural Kansas with draftees to what is now Fort Riley, then about 56,000 troops. And, of course, from Fort Riley it spread with American troops to Europe and to other bases, and pretty soon it was all around the world. And then in late August, early September, it just exploded in lethal form. And 
the press generally refers to 1918's death toll as, quote, over 20 million, unquote. And the reality is that that was a number that was a contemporary estimate. It was actually fairly accurate for Europe and the United States, but it was wildly inaccurate for the entire world. And the reality is that a Nobel Prize winner who spent most of his life studying influenza, McFarland Burnett, Burnett uh, concluded that the real death toll was a minimum of 50 million people and possibly as many as 100 million people. Uh, and this was in a world with a population only 28% as big as today's. So you adjust for population, it's the equivalent of 175 to 325 million people. And even without adjusting for population, um, it moves so rapidly in a period of 24 weeks it killed more people than AIDS has killed in the 24 years that AIDS has been a serious public health problem. So am I correct in understanding that there was like three waves of this disease? Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Right. The, the first wave, as I said a minute ago, the virus entered the population. It, it was in a new environment like any organism in a new environment. It had to adapt or die. So it was not very efficient at infecting people. It was gradually getting more and more at home, so that first wave was a mild wave. And in fact, it was so mild, although it was noticed, uh, there were actual articles in medical journals saying this is, cannot be influenza because it's too mild, and we don't see any of the complications we usually get with influenza. And that are one of the articles, the book quotes, was published on July 13th, 1918. Less than eight weeks later, people were again saying this can't possibly be influenza because it's too lethal and, too, and the symptoms are too extreme compared to any influenza we've ever seen before. But it was influenza. Uh, and the symptoms were often horrific. Uh, let me read you uh, a letter from one physician at well, Camp Devens, which was outside of Boston. Uh, it was the first army base in the United States hit by the lethal form of the epidemic in the second wave. And uh, first, let me explain, cyanosis uh, is when you turn blue from lack of oxygen. Normally, that's just a slight bluish tinge around the lips and extremities. Uh, you see, this is Dr. Roy Grist, he's writing a colleague. He said, these men start with what appears to be an ordinary attack of La Grippe or influenza. And when brought to the hospital, they very rapidly develop the most vicious type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. Two hours after admission, they have the mahogany spots over the cheekbones. And a few hours later, you can begin to see the cyanosis extending from the ears and spreading all over the face until it is hard to distinguish the colored men from the white. That's how deep the cyanosis was. He couldn't tell races apart. It is only a matter of a few hours then until death comes. It is horrible. One can stand it to see one, two, or twenty men die. But to see these poor men dropping like flies, we've been averaging about a hundred deaths per day. Pneumonia means in about all cases death. We've lost an outrageous number of nurses and doctors. It takes special trains to carry away the dead. For several days, there were no coffins, and the bodies piled up something fierce. It beats any sight they ever had in France after a battle. Goodbye, old pal. God be with you till we meet again. Uh, 
that was at Camp Devens. The experience was replicated at essentially every military base, not only in the U.S. Army uh, or Navy, but foreign forces as well. And very soon it leaked into the civilian population. In addition to the cyanosis, which physicians who treated men and then went on to practice for 50, 60 years said they never saw cyanosis as intense as they did then. Some of the other symptoms were, were so unusual for influenza that it was initially misdiagnosed as cholera, as cholera, as typhoid, as dengue, which is known as breakbone fever, to give you an idea of those symptoms. And people could bleed in some of the army bases, 20% of the soldiers were bleeding from their nose or mouth. And uh, more rarely, but definitely reported, uh, some people could even actually bleed from their ears and even their eyes. So these were terrifying symptoms. Uh, now, I want to... I don't want to over as bad as that is, the overwhelming majority of people who got influenza, even in 1918, suffered the same kind of attack that we're all familiar with today. They had a terrible three or four days, a week later they're fine. But it was this minority, and it was not a tiny minority, that had this other entirely different experience, which, which we just described. And give us a sense for how many people were actually infected with this back then. Well, it's hard to say. Uh, in the United States, it was after the disease, there was a careful epidemiological study, not of the whole country. The vital statistics weren't good enough, but they also, they picked out uh, about 25 cities and looked very closely at them, sometimes doing, often doing door-to-door surveys. And the attack rate ranged from a low of around 20% to a high in San Antonio of over 50%, actually 53%. So that in San Antonio, literally 98% of all the homes in San Antonio had at least one person sick with influenza. Now, fortunately, in San Antonio, the virus happened to be particularly mild for the 1918 virus, or the death toll would have been astronomical there. And then you have places like in um, villages in Alaska where it would wipe out like 85% of the people. Um, in some cases, literally, uh, I mean, the virus was most dangerous. Well, first, more than half the death toll, well over half the death toll, were young adults. And this is what was killing all the young people. Uh, but within within that demographic group, you know, it's also, people in cities were actually safer, in a sense, than people in the country, because people in cities had at least seen some influenza viruses, other, and that they got a little bit of cross-protection, actually considerable cross-protection, and what scientists call truly, quote, virgin populations, unquote, areas where they had never seen an influenza virus. Uh, this was absolutely deadly. So in places like Alaska, you could go into the villages and see 100% mortality. Now, that was not all because of the virus. Uh, many people died of the virus, but they also died because everyone got sick at the same time, and, feed, and therefore there was no one to care for them, no one to keep them, give them water, feed them, and so forth. 
but the same thing was also true in, it wasn't just the weather in Alaska, the same thing was true in, in Africa, where after the virus passed through, people went into and saw villages of hundreds of people, 100% mortality. Uh, give you a, a graphic example of... And technically, how does the virus kill people? What does it do to people that causes them to die? Uh, well, it invades a cell. Uh, it's called epithelial cells, which line all your mucosal membranes from the mouth all the way down into the lungs. I mean, you're, even the physical setup of the immune system, the way your windpipe works, air that you inhale has to bounce off various places, and those membranes are so effective that even though your lung obviously is exposed directly numerous times a minute every time you take a breath to outside air, the lung is actually sterile under normal circumstances. So just the physical blocking of the, by these epithelial cells, uh, which line the passageways, is tremendously effective. And the virus, however, wipes out these cells entirely. Uh, there's a photograph in the book of a healthy trachea versus 172 hours after the virus hits. And a healthy trachea of these cells, it looks like a jungle totally bush covered I mean they look like bushes uh, and, and 72 hours later it's a desert, there's nothing left uh, so the virus goes all the way it can go all the way into the lungs and down this path of cells from passing from one cell to another uh, if it gets to the lungs and you develop viral pneumonia viral pneumonia even today is, is likely to be 40 to 60 percent fatal uh, and that's what massive support and intensive care unit, if you don't get that support, then it's essentially 100% fatal. Uh, and so you can die, could die either directly from the viral, a massive viral. People were dying sometimes in less than 24 hours. Those people suffered massive viral pneumonias. The pneumonia just basically knocked out everything in the lung. Then you had another sequence of people who were dying between 24 hours and say 96 hours, two to four or five days maybe. Well, those people were dying because their immune system was counterattacking the virus. And then after that, you then had a second sequence when the body was so weakened and the immune system was so exhausted, bacteria simply marched into the lung unimpeded and people developed bacterial pneumonia. Uh, and they would die two, three weeks later. Sometimes they would get up, go back to work, and then be attacked by bacterial pneumonia and, and die from that, but that would take several weeks. And did the bulk of the deaths occur in the second wave? Oh, uh, this, the second wave killed probably 75 to 80% of uh, all the deaths from 1918 were in a, in a matter of weeks, really, it would take six to ten weeks to go through a particular area. And between mid-September of 1918 and January of 1919, uh, you had it probably three-quarters of the total death toll. 1919, the third wave struck. And it, I guess you could actually say there were fourth and fifth waves in 1920 and 1921. Uh, they're generally not technically considered of the pandemic, but I guess they really are. So 
when these mutations occur from wave to wave, I mean, from the first one to the second one was a dramatic increase in, uh, what would you call it, virility? Uh, virulence. Virulence, okay. And then the third one, it, it dropped off. It, right. It, is that the reasons for that is it's simple natural selection. Because if the virus is killing somebody in 24 hours, then there's no opportunity for that virus to propagate itself and infect somebody else. So that most lethal form of the virus is dying off. Uh, and it sort of reaches a state of equilibrium with people where it's going through them but not killing them so rapidly that, that it can't continue its own existence. And most influenza viruses, I mean, there were a couple of reasons why it became milder. Another one was, once it had gone around the world once, people's immune systems could recognize it and fight more effectively against it without over-responding. Normally, the immune system is very specific and, and you know, aims a laser. Uh, initially, in 1918, they were they were throwing you know laying just every laser they had that would hit at any target uh, but by 1919 the immune system knew specifically what to do naturally so it became more effective and of course that became more true in 1920 1921 also the virus itself most influenza viruses are nothing like the lethality of 1918 and the virus itself was mutating in the direction of most influenza viruses it was becoming more mild in and of itself what was the response of governments at the time well i think to understand what happened particularly in the united states and europe you need to understand the context and the context was we were at war and it was the first total war uh the wilson administration wilson called for quote ruthless brutality to enter into every phase of american life unquote that was wilson's goal and he wanted to turn everything in the country toward the war and to do this he first he had passed a law which would make the patriot act look like a resolution of the american civil liberties union uh let me quote this law it makes it punishable by 20 years in jail to quote utter print write or publish any disloyal profane scurrilous or abusive language about the government of the united states unquote now, this was a pretty intimidating piece of legislation. Uh, you notice it didn't say anything in there about truth. You could tell the truth, but if you criticize the government, they could still send you to jail. They sent a United States congressman to jail for 10 years. So they went around enforcing this law. And while they're, on the one hand, intimidating people into so that there'd be no criticism of the government, at the same time, they very actively mounted a propaganda campaign, something they called the Committee for Public Information. And let me read you what one of the architects of this committee said. Quote, Truth and falsehood are arbitrary terms. There is nothing in experience to tell us that one is preferable to the other. The force of an idea lies in its inspirational value. It matters very little if it is true or false, unquote. 
So this is the attitude of somebody who's behind the government information effort that the Wilson administration is putting out. And of course the purpose of all this is to generate morale, keep morale up, keep people patriotic, keep people out there going to the factories if they're sick, just you know, doing everything they can to win the war. Uh, so you have the intimidation on one hand and and an active effort to, you know, they did not care whether it was a lie or not. On the other hand, to, to get information out. Um, I have two more things kind of to add to this. Uh, he uh, He's very critical of uh, uh, Wilson, uh, Woodrow Wilson here, and... Uh, but he, he makes two claims about the later flu. He, first of all, he made some statements that the uh, General uh, Ludendorff, German general, had the spring campaign. The uh, Russia had had dropped out of the fight, and it's after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, and all the troops were moved to the uh, French, the front, Western Front, and he invaded and almost made it to Paris and won. But he blamed, at one point, said something about all his troops were down with the flu. He might have won the war. They might have had a better treaty. He doesn't follow through with that very much. And Ludendorff later on blamed left-wing elements with his defeat. And he was a supporter of Hitler. Now, the main thing here, I, though, what he does, start, he spends a whole chapter talking about the mental effects of the flu, that people went to, through a malaise and other things, and Wilson, while he was in Paris, came down with a very bad case of flu, not as bad as what we heard described, but he was very ill with it. And he had been holding out against Clemenceau, who was a fanatic, about the treaty, uh, uh, the German treaty. And after the flu, he just gave up the ghost and he signed everything over. His staff almost quit and he went back to the United States. So. I think it did have a definite effect. The last part of that interview, he says that this flu will happen again. The, you have a heavy flu almost three times every century. We had one in uh, 57 and 68 and eight, 1918. So, uh, and he's very concerned about the uh, availability of sufficient vaccines because we can't predict what it is. So now let's open it up for questions. Well, Don, uh Thanks to Lynn Evans, he put the link up uh, there. I don't know how to – I have it in an email, but uh, we have my email up, and we can get yours up there, Don, where people, if they want the whole interview, because uh, certainly a couple of things that comes through in my mind, as you said earlier, the Spanish flu. They named it the Spanish flu. Well, Spain was not in the war, so they wrote a lot about the flu, but to call it the Spanish flu was improper. It was really bad. And um, – uh, that was one point I wanted to raise, and there was another one that has eluded me <laughs> this time. Yeah, they're not sure about Kansas. They're, they, the evidence points that way, but they're not sure it, uh, it started there. But let's see what others have to say, and if I think of my other point, and I think it's worth saying, I shall do so. Thank you. Well, what impressed me a lot was the emphasis he put on the fact that the, the people burying couldn't keep up, and the bodies were stacked and there could be 200 bodies waiting to be buried, and the smell, and the... Uh, uh, this book just blew my mind. It was absolutely incredible, and it scares the heck out of me that it's going to happen again, because I can't have the flu vaccine. So, um, 
it, it was a scary, scary book, although it wasn't meant to be. I, I think uh, getting back to, to Kansas, uh, uh, it's a very interesting chapter about it. And I looked up, if you want to, the web, uh, uh, Haskell, H-A-S-C-E-L-L, H-A-S-K-E-L-L County in Kansas has a web page. And they, they say they're the flattest county in Kansas, and the 24 miles by 24 miles. They don't say anything about uh, John M. Berry or the flu, though. Uh, but uh, uh, I think the, uh, the, this, this flu issue is, is the vaccine. Maybe they can get away from the egg-based flu uh, vaccine, too. I wanted to add, Don, that right now, if I have it right, and if I'm wrong, correct me, please, they can only handle 100 only, but handle 100 million people. They, the, um, the company, there's only two that uh, produce this flu vaccine. And there's less and less, he was saying in the, in the long interview, and only 100 million. Well, you figure the U.S. will get its share in Europe, but boy, what about uh, the third world nations? Uh, it would be terrible. And Wilson, um, he, did, he did lie. He said, we cannot have a panic we we just play this flu thing down, and it was killing uh, killing our people. And uh, there's a lot of argument that uh, when he caught the flu, this led ultimately to his stroke in 1920, where uh, Mrs. Wilson uh, and um, was virtually the president. Mrs. Wilson and someone else that eludes me right now acted as president because he could not do so. So. Uh, Wilson was not sharp because he wanted a, a strong League of Nations, and he gave up after his flu thing. Don is absolutely correct, and he signed everything. Uh, this is Nan Hawthorne. and a couple of things about um, current production of flu vaccine. One is that um, the reason why there are only a couple of companies is because they own patents, and you know something. There's something to be said for. Uh, pressuring um, companies not to uh, refuse to allow other companies to um, do research. The other thing is that Tamiflu is the thing we've been hearing about for the last 10 years as being a sort of generic, at least it might pr um, prevent some of the uh, bird flu or other flu pandemics. Um, but unfortunately, just a couple weeks ago, I heard that Tamiflu is now uh, turning out to be um, ineffective. So, uh, you know, and they can't even make a vaccine until they know the nature, the actual genetic nature of the flu that's going around. Uh, apparently, was it last year, I think, that they actually had the wrong um, flu vaccine, um, but fortunately it turned out not to be as horrible a year as it could have been. So those are all things that um, I hear my husband clearing his throat, so maybe he's hearing me and can correct me, but um, that makes it all that much more frightening. One thing that's really different from 1918, 1918 they didn't have a lot of ways of combating the flu. Now we have them, but we've used them so much that they're no longer effective. Well, and those, the flu vaccines, you know, they take a guess as to which flu is actually going to be prevalent. Um, and the vaccine only um, handles like three versions of flu. And if it's, since we know it's widely mutatable, um, 
you, you know, if you get vaccinated for the flu, sometimes you catch another flu and that doesn't give you any help. When um, this book first came out, I read a review in Washington Post Book World. I'm pretty sure this is the book that was referred to. I used to read those. I used to, to read that a lot. So I might be wrong, but it seems to me that reference was made in that book review about a program that was on in the 70s called Upstairs to Downstairs. And the author said in the review that the there was an episode, and I don't know if anybody were as big fans as I was of Upstairs Downstairs, but I absolutely, absolutely loved it, still would love it to be on again, uh, where Hazel Forrest actually gets the flu and they take her through the uh, in 1918 1919 and they take her through the symptoms and of course she dies and it was one of the saddest programs it was just a very sad sad episode and if anybody else watched it i don't know if you were as involved as i was with it but i just cried because certainly didn't want her to die and um yet it described so much as to what she went through with first uh, losing her appetite and not feeling well and not doing anything about really taking her taking care of herself and then they bring the doctor in and then they end up after going through quite a, a bit she passes away so that's just a little thing I wanted to add to the discussion yeah, Joni, I watched that too, and I was nuts about Hazel, so it made me even sadder. And I think a lot of it too was just the suddenness of it and the shock for the people in the household um, that you know, one minute their mistress is there, and the next minute she's gone. And uh, I'm sorry to say that I think her husband, in the long run, was was just as happy. But um, you, by the way, upstairs downstairs is all on. Uh, DVD by now, um, so you can. We recently, I think, watched it from beginning to end, <laughs> and that's a quite an experience. Uh, reading the text chat, Lynn Evans says, "Still another link on the topic is PBS series American Experience http colon uh, slash slash www.pbs.org slash wgbh slash amex." Influenza. Sherry Wells says, yes, I love that show and remember that episode. There are some talking book versions of Upstairs, Downstairs, too. I think another thing that comes into the, that, that the book um, emphasized was that you could be feeling fine in the morning and dead in the afternoon. It, it hit some people so rapidly that they didn't have time to feel bad or prepare or they just got very sick and died. Yeah, or you, or you could recover supposedly from the flu, get up and go to work and be dead in three weeks. In that you're, uh, I gather he explains that the immune system has fought its battle but is exhausted and the lasers are down and the bacteria get you, charges right into the lungs and wipes you out. And uh, he talks also about China, and I miss this, having the SARS flu, and they lied to everybody too. 
they were hit with with the SARS flu. I think it was in '03. I think it was. Well, that's the thing that I I didn't understand, and I don't know. I would hope that it wouldn't take place today, but the the fact that that everything was so propagandized, and the way that the press just glossed over everything and didn't tell the truth, the, it said that the only city in the U.S. that that didn't panic and and so on that told the truth was San Francisco, and they. Although, although they didn't have it as bad as certain areas, uh, everyone was rather orderly and calm because uh, the city officials told the tu- truth to the press, and um, it you know they 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 came out uh, rather well. Well, but you know, place yourself in the uh, the chair of somebody who is in that kind of control, and. Are you going to run around alerting people that they're going to be dead in a day? Um, politically, it, that'd be really hard to do. Um, you know, knowing how how finely tuned the politicians are to make sure that they don't really tell anybody the truth to begin with. Um, that's it's a horrible position, and I wouldn't imagine any um, governmental agency would um, balk at telling a lie on, on this subject? Uh, I, I think the reason they weren't saying anything was primarily because of the laws at the time, but it was really bad, and people lost total faith in what they read in the newspapers, uh, and they, of course, hold Philadelphia up as a horrible example versus San Francisco and some of the West Coast where the flu was, was milder. What I was so shocked was the uh, putting the troops on the troop ships, keeping them locked down and isolated in different compartments, and then they let them eat in the same dining room uh, at different shifts so they could spread it around. It was just crazy. Sherry says, ironically, I think the press may be more honest about reporting such a thing today, but no one would believe it. Everyone would think they were fear-mongering, and of course, right at the minute, we're seeing most of our newspapers fold up. Those are all excellent points, Joy, um, or excuse me, Sherry. Um, don't for the person who said that they can't imagine it happening now. Unfortunately, the uh, the bird flu that they've been talking about, which is is been threatening for a couple of years, uh, is a particular kind of flu that once it does jump to humans and go human to human transmission, it will be. Uh, very likely a 60% or more fatality rate and it's it's up to us to pressure our our governments to at least you know start figuring out what they're going to do with everybody who's sick and uh, um, try to you know, manage it uh, I can't feel okay about the government keeping it quiet um, there are ways of communicating to people, and in the meantime, they need to just get ready for it because we may not be able to handle it. It may be you know, something that just really cuts the population down. And you, know, you look at a situation like now, and you know, compared to, I mean, we talk about being in bad times, but we don't even know what we're talking about compared to parts of the world. And they could be as devastated as they were in 1918, or for that matter, in the 1340s. Um, 
And, uh, you know, in Ireland during the, the potato famine, which was another situation. But, by the way, that, that disease also started in Kansas. So, unless it was Iowa, but close. Um, I think that's it. And uh, just, you know, wash your hands a lot. Well, rem remember, in those days, they didn't understand contagion. Um, they, they said things like, um, your mouth is not for breathing, use your nose. Uh, but they didn't really understand how far a disease could go. And um, I had another point, but it went where Bob's eluded points went. I, I, it's gone. <laughs> uh, I was amazed with the progress of medicine that uh, our medical, you know, in 18, because I read a book, I talk about it often, The Blind Doctor. And I thought, well, how could he get a, you know, how could he get a medical degree? Some of these schools, nothing against him. I think he was wonderful. But uh, they were not accredited. They, they had no licensing boards. Finally, uh, Welsh, uh, Dr. Welsh and uh, John Ho Johns Hopkins and uh, some guy in Michigan did well. But his two standout characters were Paul Lewis, and how can you argue that, uh, who never encountered, never could find the vaccine, the, the virus or whatever, the antibiotic or whatever I'm trying to say here. Uh, somebody else at the Rockefeller Institute did. But also Avery, he points out, Avery looked 12 years to try to find the cause of the flu. And he finally, isn't he the one that finds out about uh, or leads us toward discovering DNA and coding, uh, genetic coding? So uh, those are the two, you know, and, and uh, Avery gave up and then he had a nervous breakdown and he, he never quit until they came up with this DNA uh, coding concept that was really uh, popularized, popularized later. But what I'm trying to say with all of this is medicine was a little more modern than I believed in 1918. It wasn't like ours, but it was pretty good. They understood a lot of things. Yes, the thing that surprised me about the whole book was um, the idea of the germ theory had just been formed within the last maybe 30 to 50 years. And so then they were just kind of getting a, a grasp on that. And uh, to say that well, we, it won't happen again and that, and that the, uh, the press will just you know, back the government and, and deny everything. Um, several countries in Africa have denied that they have a problem with AIDS. And just recently, I can't remember what country it was in Africa, uh, it used to be Rhodesia. Um, they were saying um, the one that the country that's just completely fell apart uh, has said that uh, cholera epidemic. They don't have a problem with the cholera epidemic, and uh, and and the and in Iran, their president has said that they don't have a problem with AIDS because they don't have any homosexuals. Now that's interesting. Um, my the point that I couldn't remember was the journalists who told the truth were very courageous in that they faced 10 to 20 years imprisonment for doing this. If you are, are tearing your life apart by telling the truth, most people aren't going to do it. And I can understand why the journalists didn't speak out or why the, I think the people themselves didn't speak out. And he brought out how civilians were co-opted into reporting um, false speech, false attitudes, and it would be a scary time to live. Oh, I totally agree. You know, in some ways I loved Wilson, some of his idealism, 
but it was awful. Uh, Mickey Eugene Debs, of course, who ran for president in 1920 while in jail and got a million votes. He, he didn't say anything that bad against the government. He was critical of it. And the FBI guy was in the audience. Not quite FBI but yet, but and they arrested him. He got seven years. I mean, uh, the president takes absolute dictatorial power during a really declared war. And I know Bush tried to tried to do a lot of that, too, with the Patriot Act. But I won't get this author, by the way, does not like the Bush administration, except he says they did better than most about influenza. They have committed they committed more money to it. And he did give them credit for that, although he said, I'm not a champion, a fan of the Bush administration. Most of us would agree with him. Amen. We're not hearing you. I'm taking down names, Marcia. I got your name here. I'm right under mine. Okay. Uh, let's see if that person wants to try it again. We did not hear you. I'm sorry. Do we see a hand up there, Joey, trying to get in? I can't. Mine's saying no one when I do the Alt-E. Yeah, the last person who tried to talk uh, and we didn't get any sound was Joanne Becker. Oh, hi, Joanne. Didn't see you here. Welcome. Um, you can do use text chat, Joanne, if you want F8, but uh, I know you have had some mic issues. Okay, Don, it's, it's yours here. Excuse me. I just wanted to say whistleblowers uh, who mostly are the ones that tell the truth always are the most hurt by it. Uh, but I, I say yay to whistleblowers and that you know it takes a lot of courage to do that uh, this kind of leads me to the uh, next uh, book for next month which deals with the Adams John Adams administration with the alien and, and sedition laws where they, they also had a, a similar uh, law except that the courts there said that if you told the truth it, you, it was it was a it, you they couldn't prosecute you so you had to prove the truth in Europe if you pled they said it was true that only made your offense worse so we have to do this um, now that I brought it up I wanted to say our next book is uh, uh, for those who can't stay longer uh, you're welcome to talk longer but uh, the uh, let's see I've I'm holding down the key because I don't want to try that mic again. It's Jefferson, Adams, and the uh, revolutionary election of uh, 1800. And it's uh, by uh, Bernard Weisenberger. And it, it's, uh, I will be public, we will be saying it's DB56782. Uh, and uh, it tell, talks about uh, broken friendships, scandals, uh, riots, and beatings. Uh, but it also tells about how the election of 1800 was placed in the, uh, uh, in the, into the House of Representatives. They had 36 ballots before they resolved the issue. It also starts with the uh, Washington administration and goes through how we almost went, well, we went to war with France and then almost with uh, Britain, which we did later. So I think you'll find it a very exciting book. Um, um, America Afire is the way I found it by Bernard Weisberger, W-E-I-S-B-E-R-G-E-R. -E -E Don, maybe you want to repeat the DB thing again, because that's the quickest way to find it. And library, I don't know if it's in Bookshare. Uh, Don, did you did we check to see if it was in Bookshare? Um, but it's uh, it's very good uh, book. Of course, Jefferson and Adams were bitter, bitter enemies. 
and yet died as friends on July 4th, 1826, just a few hours from each other. I mean, you know, one died first. I think I think Jefferson did, and then Adams. But uh, they, they were enemies, and um, Jefferson, they thought, was a radical, and 36 ballots later, he gets elected president uh, of the United States. But the war was on, so, uh, and uh, they didn't, they didn't play games. If you uh, uh, criticize John Adams, uh, you go to jail for a long time. Or your editor, your, if you're an editor, they close your paper down. Here's the, the good old USA at that time. People were just scared. This could be apocryphal, but I heard that Jefferson did die first, and Adams, of course, being a curmudgeon, was alert. You know, he, he was told that Jefferson had died, and he said, well, at least I outlived him. Now I can die. That sounds perfectly possible. By the way, just a quick uh, um, jump back to the uh, 1918 flu. Those of you who are in the Let's Read Historical Novels group and read the Adelsverein, the Gathering book, you'll remember that uh, several times in the book they jump to a point in the future when Magda is an old woman and she's talking to her daughter Lottie. And that happens in the other two books, and there's a great deal more of it in the third um, that whole situation uh, is during the 1918 flu epidemic, and Lottie is acting as a volunteer nurse, if I remember correctly, in the uh, um, army base nearby, and talks about the horror of, of uh, what she saw happening to the soldiers. So there's a little bit of a... Uh, a connection between two of our book groups. That's cool. Magda lived that long. I didn't realize, you know, I remember when she was talking to her, the daughter and the grandchildren, uh, the children. That's cool. That's the Sewing is the next one I've got to read, and then The Harvest, I think, is the third uh, C.A. Hayes book. Anyway, commercials, but it's books. We don't care. We, we proselytize. We, we talk about books wherever we go in these book groups. So, uh, anyway, I'll let up here, but uh, again, America of Fire by Bernard A. Weisberger. I do want to comment the compliment Don on his uh, releases. They're very accurate. They're, he, if he can get an interview, he'll have a link. Uh, and uh, they're, they're really neat. They, they, uh, they're uh, pretty good in themselves to read. I sit there and say, I've got to save this one. This is really good. I just wanted to share that I finished um, uh, a science fiction book, one of the few that I've read here recently, and it was by Todd McCaffrey, Annie McCaffrey's son. Um, written on Pern, and most of his book has to deal with um, a 1918 influenza kind of situation in that science fiction world. So um, you hear these things, you know, they, the, the idea about this pandemic flu floats in for both um, fiction as well as nonfiction. I used to hear stories when I was a little girl uh, about the flu, um, my grandmother was pregnant at the time with my mother, and my grandfather got sick. And, of course, they were certain that was flu, and it ended up being carbon monoxide poisoning from the factory that he worked in. But people were terrified. I mean, they, they didn't know who was going to die next. It was, it was just um, it was a horrible time. I, I'm glad I missed that one. Yeah, me, me too, Mickey. And uh, it was a, it was something in the book. I was amazed at uh, how many young people died. You know, uh, well, the, aside from the soldiers, even, you know, people in their twenties and thirties and so on. 
I'd heard stories about my aunt. She would have been around 18 in 1918, and I guess she got it. She survived and had uh, five children and, and everything, and, and she lived to be a... Uh, Oh, I lived to be a, you know, ripe old age, um, but she had it, so, but I, it was amazing to me because, you know, you always think of the resiliency of, of youth, but I guess it didn't uh, necessarily hold true during this uh, 1918 epidemic. Well, and one of the um, stark reminders, which harkens back to the bubonic plague, was in the 1918 where um, priests would go around with a horse-drawn cart saying, bring out your dead, um, just like they did in the Middle Ages. That's pretty amazing in a time where we think the automobile is everywhere. Yeah, that, that did amaze me. But the other thing is that um, people's, the younger people's immune systems aren't as strong against, they haven't dealt with as many flus, they haven't dealt with, with as many varying diseases as we older people. Um, I, I, when I was reading that, I was going, hmm, there are advantages to being my age. I think it's the other way around. Uh, uh, the, the younger people have a, more str a stronger immune system, and they, it was the overreaction of the immune system that caused the uh, lungs to become like cardboard or the, the bleeding and stuff from the nose, mouth, eyes, and ears. And the, uh, he, he kind of hedged on uh, small children, but older people had weaker immune system and didn't react so, so bad. That doesn't make me happy. I think you're right, though. Well, also, uh, in those days, people did not live as long as we live now. And so, um, I mean, making people live longer is one of the great things that happened in the 20th century. If you go and look at cemeteries and uh, gravestones, you get quite shocked as to, yes, there were many people that did live to a ripe old age, but not like today. Today you have more people over 100, and, um, you know, they keep saying that the 60s like the new 40 and all this stuff. So um, it's quite astounding. I can uh, recommend, I can't think of the author's name, but there's a book called The Doomsday Book. and I think it's D-O-O-M-S-D-A-Y, just like you expect. Uh, it's a little bit of science fiction, a little bit of historical fiction, um, certainly a medical thriller. Uh, it takes place both in the, um, I think about the 2020s in uh, Oxford in England, and also in the same basic area uh, during uh, the 14th century, and the woman who travels in time back to the, she thinks the 1320s, but gets dropped in the 1340s, uh, finds herself face to face with the Black Death. And there's a scene at the end where even the priest has uh, has dug a, a grave for himself because he knows there won't be anybody left afterwards to dig the grave for him. And the woman who travels, oh, speaking of which, um, there's also a pandemic going on in Oxford at the same time, and they don't know at first if it's somewhere or another connected, if the bubonic plague traveled somehow through their uh, device that uh, sent the woman back. So I recommend that. I wish I could remember the author, but if anybody wants to know, Hawthorne at nanhawthorne.com, I can tell you. 
The Doomsday Book was written by a really great science fiction writer. Her name is Connie Willis, W-I-L-L-I-S. I have read this book and a lot of other things. She is a fine author. We're going to get enjoy uh, yours. Is uh, What is the name of the book that you had? P-E-R-M, was it? Todd McCaffrey? And the Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. I'm going to go up on Bookshare, and if not, I'll, I'll get it somewhere. And I have a wonderful guy that uh, he and his friend... Uh, scan and validate for us in a matter of days. I mean, they're just great for, for me because if you wait for me to do it, it'll never get done. But uh, we get it into Bookshare at least. And we'll look at MLS as well. Uh, we can do it by title. So we'll try to find But what was your book called again, Joy? The writer was Todd, T-O-D-D, McCaffrey. M-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y, thereabouts. Um, his this particular book of the series is called Dragon Heart, one word, dragon, and then heart, Dragon Heart. Uh, McCaffrey is M C C A F F R E Y, and Pern P E R N as in Nan um, is the world that uh, Anne McCaffrey wrote about, and I find it quite intriguing that uh, her son Todd is as well. It's a wonderful series. Thanks, Nan. Spelling was never my foresight. Uh, I'm never very good with it when I'm trying to do it um, just by voice. I'm much better when I see stuff. Uh, uh, yeah, the first three books that Todd wrote, he wrote in conjunction with his mother. And so basically she has turned over her world to him. Oh, that's neat. Well, Don, I'm going to be going, but I thank you so much. Uh, and uh, it was great. And uh, let's read America of Fire by Bernard A. Weisberger, I believe it is. And Don, we'll, we'll get a, if you can get a release out soon, I think you and I were right. I was confused too. I'm just doing this. I'm a new kid on the block in some ways. And uh, just to give us more time to read it. And I apologize for personally for not finishing the influenza book, but I will now. I'll, I'll make the time. Uh, but uh, uh, those who did, great. Those who haven't yet, Read it, and uh, John Barry is a great author. Don's very good at getting reviews from these authors. I don't know that he'll get a verbal one from Weisberger, uh, but I'm sure he'll come up with something for us. So uh, thank you, everybody, and you guys can talk all night, as Don says. What is the date for the next presentation? Let me jump in here and say that Sherry Wells says, um, Year of Wonders by Geraldine Brooks is also an excellent book on the Black Death in the Middle Ages based on fact about a town that isolates itself during this time and how it fares. You guys are good readers. Joni, I believe it will be April 15, because I think April 1 is a Wednesday. And uh, Joanne, <laughs> she were, she's our calendar lady, but I think Joanne were right. April 15 uh, at 9 Eastern, 6 Pacific. So... Uh, Happy reading.